Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today. Hey guys, turkey season is in full swing right now, and if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some Meat Eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls, and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms, I like them because it gives you hand-free calling, meaning when you're working a bird up close... You can have your gun on your knee, finger on the trigger, ready to roll, and still be making turkey sounds. I like pot calls because I just like pot calls. I enjoy calling with a pot call. Whatever direction you go, including a box call, which I don't personally use too much, but they're fun and great, and I started out with them. Yanni, on the other hand, one of my main turkey hunting buddies, he loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give them the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like them. I just have Yanni use his. Then I don't have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by First Light. Go farther, stay longer. All right, ladies and gentlemen, Yanni is going to introduce everybody. Yanni? Can I say what town we're near? I don't give a shit. We're here in Southwest Michigan at our buddy Matt's place, hunting some Turks. Less than an hour from my dad, who we're not going to see on this trip, probably. But who appreciates good intro. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we got Whit Fosberg from TRCP, Seth Morris, the flip flop flesher, flesher, Ryan Callahan. Old Cal, 406 on Instagram, and Steven Ranella. Speaking of Instagram handles, I was wondering why Joe Cermelli from uh, B-Side Fishing. Mm-hmm. Which is a great fishing show, if you haven't seen it. Yet. Yeah. Just one episode so far, right? Two. Oh, there's two out right now, or there yeah. will be two out? I think there's two out right there's now. There's two out. Nice. Probably by the time this thing airs, all four of them will be out. Jersey fishing, and what else? It's all stuff around Jersey, Sonny. Oh, nice. Yeah. Nice. That's this season's theme. I've seen the uh, New Jersey Turnpike a couple of times. On the show? No, just driving on it. Oh, you just personally. Yeah, that, that's all my experience in <laughs> Did Jersey. Did you love it? Um, I thought it was, you know, as far as infrastructure goes, it was a solid piece of work. You know, a thing they have out east, um, 
I want to get back to Joe Cermelli's Instagram handle in a minute here. But the thing they have out east, you notice those ones like that that have where there's a huge median? Yeah, with all the mature trees in the middle? Yeah, like the median's so big you can't see. Like if you're going, whatever, northbound, you can barely see the southbound traffic. When I was writing for outside, I kept, they never let me do it. I know. I kept being like, I want to do a story where I camp in there for a week and have just someone just slow down on the highway. Let me jump out and then, and then backpack and camp down those long medians <laughs> where no one can go because you can't even get out there. Yeah. You'd find some weird stuff out there, man. Oh, yeah. That's, yeah. That's a good idea. Dude, I have seen turkeys out living in those. I was going to say that. No one's going to get to them. Insurance companies must hate those things from white-tailed deer crossing back and yeah, forth. Yeah, you see some of those, it's like there's no way anybody is messing around in there. I think there's deer living and dying in those things. And it's probably... And they're owned by, they're, they're owned by Department of Transportation. State, yeah, state. Yeah, they never let me do that story. Uh, Joe, uh, Sir Melly. It's like Joe. It's like Joe Cermelli one thirty eight. Someone check, fact check me. And I was saying, I don't know what the hell the one thirty eight is. It's based off a Misfit song. Like I solved two riddles at once because when we had the Nature's Metal dude on, I was talking about how Joe Cermelli. He's a metal guy, and I was saying Joe Cermelli likes metal. He said, "What kind of metal?" I'm. I don't know what the hell he likes. Joe Dot Cermelli one thirty eight, and it's from that Misfits tune. We are one thirty eight, which I still don't know what the hell that means, but um. Yeah, what does that mean anyway? That's why he's Joe dot Cermelli one three eight is because the Misfits song one three eight. Which, if the Nature's Metal guy Rick is listening, he likes that song. Maybe it's a union thing, like local pipe fitters one thirty eight. Yeah, it's got to be it, Cal. <laughs> uh, guy wrote in lifelong resident of Wyoming. This is this is apropos. This is apropos of of, of it, the time of year, it being the spring when um all good men and women hunt turkeys. Uh. I didn't know this about Wyoming. In Wyoming, you can still in the spring season shoot turkeys. Did you know this? In the spring season, you can shoot turkeys with a rifle. A center a fire. Center fire. Ooh. No, no, no. Rim fire. What am I? No, center fire. You can you can shoot turkeys in the spring with a center fire rifle. That changed the game, huh? It sure changed the game. It sure changed the way I feel about, I mean, and I wouldn't have changed the way I feel about getting my camis on and sitting next to my decoy. Yeah. Especially your uh, full strutter. Yeah. Some dude 100 yards away. There's one. Wind blows and that thing starts moving. Yeah. Or if Nephi Cole's out there 800 yards away. Mm-hmm. I'd like to think he'd know a live turkey from a, from a plastic <laughs> one, but Sure. It takes all the fun out of it, though. Hmm. Hmm. The best, the best, you know, the best part about spring gobbler hunting is the interaction and the calling them in. And yeah, for sure, they have a they have a uh, the game. Wyoming Game and Fish has an open public comment period on these regulations. This guy's thinking that shotguns and you know shotguns and archery tackle is appropriate. I'll tell you an apocryphal. Oh, go ahead, Yanni. I was going to say I have an opinion on why it is that way in Wyoming. Please. I just think it's the wide open spaces. Mm-hmm. Like you're probably not hunting turkeys in like the classic turkey hunt country of the eastern United States there. Right? Yeah, you're hunting creek so, bottoms, valley bottoms, ag yeah, fields. 
Yeah, just more open country where the same way that where we're sitting now in Michigan, you can't use a center high-powered rifle to hunt deer. It's too dense, too many people. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, out in Wyoming, you can stretch it out a little bit. I'll tell you a story that comes out of Florida. And you were here. I don't know if you remember this, but and you might have been not here here, but you were present on this trip where someone was explaining about when a sportsman's group in Florida wanted to um, address this issue. A turkey hunting group was worried about rifle use during mm-hmm. spring turkey season for mm-hmm. safety purposes. Like, again, full camo there, flat ground, full camo, decoys, mimic- Jun- jungle-like habitat landscape mimicking animal sounds right you start hearing it all and you start realizing it seems like a way that there's a pathway toward someone Mm -hmm. getting shot and they this this turkey hunting group wanted to address um what they thought was a real serious liability which is being able to use rifles for spring turkey they did not want it to blow up into a um firearms rights question and they had gone through quite a bit of work to uh, they had gone through quite a bit of work to explain that the motivation is not a, a, a firearms restriction. This has nothing to do with ownership. But this is like hunters advocating for other hunters that in the spring season should be shotguns to reduce risk. And when it went for I don't know what ultimately happened, but when it went forward, it did not go the way they planned, and it very much became a um, it became like a gun rights question hmm. and not a turkey hunting question. Um, wonder if you can still now use rifles. In I don't even know. This is, we heard this story a long time ago and it might even have been what had already gone on, but either way, I think that also it's like when, when people have, and, and I'm as guilty of it as anybody, not guilty. It's not that like you need to be guilty of it. I have that tendency as much as anybody is when you have the ability to do something and all of a sudden you can't, right? You kind of go like, well, what's up with that? Why is that? A great question being um, in Montana, uh, right? You can't look like bear hunting in Montana. You know, it's not a public safety issue, but you can't bait. You can't use dogs. Mm -hmm. People are quite okay with that. If you live in a state where you, could use dogs and all of a sudden you're not supposed to use dogs anymore. It encounters a lot of friction. But if you're somewhere where something's always been a certain way, it just becomes easier to deal with. And so if you're living, you know, in Wyoming and you got a place and every year you get a turkey with your 22 mag and all of a sudden someone's like, no, no, no. You can picture that you would. Oh, for sure. Be a little miffed. Yeah. Especially. I haven't shot anybody. You're like, Super safe, never had an issue, never even came close to having an issue. Yeah. So why can't I? Sure, I can see other people, but not me. Very natural. This is a good question that came in about turkeys. Um, He was wondering, let's say, let's say uh, you had a pet turkey and you tethered him out in a field. Would that be a good... Decoy. Hell yes. yes. <laughs> 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 
My my kids' buddy, their their family raises turkeys. I don't know what the hell kind. Of, they're like Spanish blacks or something. Spanish. Yeah, I was blacks. gonna say they don't even have to be the right color, dude. Well, that's some bitch in turkey. We went over there to get ours. My, I brought my boy over there with little twenty two shorts to shoot turkey. Yep. That that we had they had gifted us, and I was startled, man. I was like, "Are you sure? That's not just a regular wild. It looked like a wild turkey, almost." Oh, if like, you saw it through coming through the woods, dude, you would. I, I get uh, nine out of ten people wouldn't be like, "There's something wrong with that turkey." We had uh, growing up, we had bronze and white turkeys, and man, they every every morning in the spring there was a flock of wild turkeys hanging out with them. Hmm. Really? Yeah. 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 This thing was surprising. I mean, it was like different, but surprisingly, it wasn't like you know. I went over there. I was expecting some big ass white turkey. I don't know. Like something that looked like a... Yeah, the bronze is the one that looks probably the closest, right? No, it? it's like brown. Oh, I can't remember. I ordered one, or we ordered a bunch, actually. Uh, Jake's going to take a few off my hands, but uh, they're, they're coming to my house, I believe, in July or August. But uh, Oh, and you're getting turkeys? Yeah. Yeah, we're going to eat some, part, and, and then I'm going to learn how to call better. From these uh, the hens, I'm gonna keep some hens around. But uh, another another reason I want to have them around is because yeah, they're gonna be making some noise all the time, and I hope to attract some wild turkeys. Hey, you probably attract grizzly bear here one of these days. <laughs> <laughs> that you might have you might have your, your that might uh, excite your black bears, Johnny. Mm-hmm. Um, Doctor Michael Chamberlain, Turkey Doc, Wild Turkey Doc on Instagram. Um. He says, if the bird acted in any way normal, it would be incredibly effective, which is why I doubt you'll find a state where it's legal. Because I don't know that, but I'd be stunned if any states actually allow use of live decoys. He said that thing was that type of thing was outlawed decades ago around waterfowl hunting. And that used to be a practice. Yes. Putting Big out time. ducks. I wonder what an abnormal turkey acts like. A peacock panicked. It would only be effective if it was if it acted normal. If it acted panicked. Oh yeah, if it like constantly like hunches close to the ground and looks mm-hmm. over its shoulder and tries to run away, um, that'd be a problem. What I had a, a <laughs> what I had a handful. Uh, I learned a new thing about turkeys because uh, uh, a thing I was able to witness several times over the last couple of days. Um watching deer and turkeys coming uh, in a food plot together that if a deer freaks out and runs away like spooks and runs jumps and runs whatever the turkeys are like "Eh." they kind of lift their heads up but don't really care when that deer goes Holy smokes, man. It takes those turkeys 10 minutes to put their heads back down. Even hmm. if it's off, even if it's off in the distance. Hmm. And I today watched, I heard a deer blow. I watched nine hens all stick their heads up. And I watched two fox squirrels run to a tree, go up the tree and start chattering. Over a deer blowing. Close, but a deer blowing. And it took those things, I'm ex- like, definitely six minutes. 
to stick their heads back down again. That's valuable observation. People bring up like, what do animals, you know, how do animals, right? And I remember um, uh, talking about pine squirrels that, 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 you know, you get irritated when you're elk hunting or whatever, and a pine squirrel sees you. But then you realize that they're also doing it to elk. But then we had a squirrel researcher say that pine squirrels are usually doing that to pine squirrels. Like, so I think the animals, they don't care at all. When a pine squirrel's going, I think everybody's like, the guy's always doing that. But man, the deer blow is an attention grabber. They they had, these researchers once took, I don't know what the hell they look like, but a vervet monkey, you know what that is? A vervet, vervet monkey. They went to this troop of monkeys and created a, well, let me back up a little bit. They found that these monkeys have a variety of warning calls and they have a warning calls that are directed toward a threat on the ground. And they have warning calls that are used for a threat in the air and there's, they're different. And depending on what noise comes out, the animals will respond by clearing the ground or getting up against the trunk and looking up. They were able to record a specific vervet monkey doing his alarm call. And then they started playing it all the time to the troop until they blew that monkey's credibility. And people quit paying attention to that monkey. He became the boy who cries wolf. Monkeys quit paying attention to that monkey. They blew his credibility by, he's like, oh, there he is again, you know, but there's no problem. (laughs) He's probably pissed. Yeah, not that (laughs) dude. Unbelievable, (laughs) yeah. It's manipulative, man. Um, I I noticed basically every time crows flew over the decoys, like low, they made a racket. It's like they flew over the food plot, saw that there was decoys and started calling aggressively. Oh, I thought you meant that the, the the turkeys take note of no the crows just flying over like multiple times. I noticed crows flying over silent. And they flew over, hit the food plot, like looked down, saw the decoys, and started making all sorts yeah. of racket. Yeah, uh, Aaron Warburton, the guy from the hunting public that I got to hunt with in Georgia a few weeks back, he actually takes note and and continues to like keep an eye on the crows that are working the zone. And if he's like, man, those crows. Or he'll be like, oh, a gobbler gobbled earlier over there. And if you've noticed, those crows have sort of been hanging around over there. They're pestering that turkey and the turkeys that he, the turkeys that are with that turkey. Yeah, and I like believe it. Messing with them. Hmm. Um that that is, you know, a documented deal with, with big game as far as um, you know, scavenger birds alerting predators to large prey sources especially in the winter because they're they're going to get a reward yeah. if if something dies um but i would think that like crows ravens they probably eat or you know try to eat young turkey poults or locate nests here and there too yeah that's interesting so there, i'm sure there's a there's a real interaction there mm-hmm. you know another thing that I had never picked up on because I didn't have such a like such a controlled concentrated high volume area to observe it is that we use these turkey coys uh DSDs Dave Smith decoys and holy shit I mean a dude looks at them they look like a freaking turkey a turkey looks at them they look like a turkey 
So turkeys will come out. I was hunting with for you season with my boy. A turkey came out, a hen came out and bedded down to to preen herself between my strutter and my hen decoy and laid down in the grass and, and groomed herself. That is awesome. Very contentedly. Um, last night I had seven hens out, seven real live turkey hens out in a field with my two decoys. Totally bought into it. Like totally bought into it. Some deer, and again and again, I saw this happen. <laughs> deer come out, and those deer, man, the, they, the minute they step clear of the brush, it's like, something's wrong with that turkey. <laughs> <laughs> like, whatever they see is like, like, what they see isn't what, it, I mean, we all know it's not what we see. It definitely isn't what a turkey sees. They see something, and, that, and they're stomping their foot the minute they stick their nose out. They do, there's something about the sheen of it. I don't know what. They are not buying it. Circling it, stomping at it, trying to get it downwind. That deer will leave and our deer will come out and right away the deer will be like, don't like that. <laughs> I would love to know what it is that they... Yeah, you didn't take no to like real... wind direction at all? No, like man, it... there's real freaking turkeys out there. Right. But your decoy uh, doesn't have like a little funk to it from just rubbing against your hip. It doesn't seem... Miles. It seems visual, man. It yeah. seems like... You know how like this whole thing that they they you know they don't see what we see, mm-hmm. and we know that. I mean, people are always trying to tell you what they see, but you know it's they don't see what we see. And there's something about the finish on it, the material on it. They see that, and they're like, uh, uh-uh. uh, yeah. yeah. Or maybe it's like you know the the stillness of them, the lack of movement. Yeah, because I feel like a lot of times there's, they don't there, have there's, feet. There, there's a real. <laughs> There's a real sort of sense of curiosity. Like they kind of come towards it. They stomp their feet at it. You know, they do a lot of those sort of like herky-jerky motions, like trying to see if like maybe when it puts its head away, does it move, you know? And I think it makes them uneasy how little motion there is. Yeah, maybe maybe, maybe it's just that. Another thing I saw... Because certainly a deer decoy that's completely still and motionless, it fools a deer. Yeah. Yeah, it might just be something about its like body language or another thing. This is small sample size, and I can't say it's for sure yet, but this this is of interest. Is that I was watching a fox squirrel today, two fox squirrels that were perched up in trees, and they're just hanging around. And when these turkeys came out, I don't know what this. I don't know what this. What is, what is that planted in up there? That winter wheat. It's winter wheat. Yeah. Um, I don't know why the hell the squirrels want to be out in there. Wheat seeds? Yeah, they might be pulling up wheat seeds. I was trying to watch them through my binoculars. Whatever they're picking up is so small you can't see it, but they're picking something up, you know? Yeah. But I, and for me to you, I can't tell what the hell they're grabbing. It's probably a wheat seed. So, or I, I noticed there was, uh, there was some maple trees that had the... Oh, they might be getting the spinners off? Them. Yeah. Okay. When the hens came out, the squirrel came out with them and basically fed underneath them. And where they went, he went. And he didn't go out there till they went out there. I don't know. Extra set eyes. Yeah. And last night, I was sneaking into that same spot and could see some hens. So I stopped and waited. 
for the hens to pass through. And as they pass through, I realized there's a squirrel going behind them. <laughs> it might be just him. It might be just him. I don't know. Smart squirrel. Lost his parents at a young age, raised by turkeys. Raised that old by story. Turkeys. Yeah. Um, I did uh, another quick. No, there's two. Tur- there's another turkey note. Sorry, all people that dr- turkeys drive people crazy. Apologies ahead of time. But I took my two kids. They're out there, Yanni. They are out there. They ride into you. They are out there, and they are sick of freaking turkeys. It'll end. It'll start back up again. <laughs> um, <laughs> took my two kids to. Uh, for youth turkey season in Wisconsin. So the state I live in, you have to be 10 to hunt turkeys. To hunt, hunt anything, you got to be 10 years old. And then you, um, I, I think I'm mostly getting this right. Uh, generally, states have, generally, this is probably, this is very much true. States have reduced or eliminated age barriers for hunting because they've gotten into, states have gotten into like, these mentored hunting things. So for instance, when I was a little uh, boy, you had to be 14 to hunt deer with a gun, 12 to hunt deer with a bow, but you could jump right into doing it. It was like you could jump into not being able to do it at all. And then at 12, you could go out by yourself and hunt squirrels. So what a lot of states have done is they've instituted these, these mentorship things. So in Montana, for instance, once your kid's 10, they can hunt for two years without before they need to do hunter safety. So a kid can hunt for two years without doing hunter safety, but they have to be within arm's reach of a mentor. And the mentor has to be a licensed hunter of a certain age, 21 years of age, maybe has to be licensed certain age thing, licensed in good standing. And then they have to fill out a, they have to fill out a mentor form. So now my, my boy who's 10, um, he was able to hunt deer with me last year. Um, and you know his uncle signed up as his mentor too. Uh, Wisconsin has no age restrictions um, as long as you're mentored. So I took my two kids, my eight-year-old daughter and my ten-year-old boy, to uh, Wisconsin because they could each hunt. So me and my buddy Doug were able to to take those two out hunting, and they each got their uh, they each got their first turkey. My daughter got one. She had to shoot it twice, but yeah, a little bit of a long story. But got one with a 410 with a red dot scope, which I think is a wonderful way to go for little kids. You think she's hooked? Very much. She asked Doug if she could hunt there again next year. Oh, good. That's great. She liked it a bunch. Liked it a bunch. That's cool. Very cool. Liked everything about it. But how'd they handle the getting up? I know. They don't care. Really? Rosemary too, huh? Yeah, they're fine. Wow. That's yeah. cool. Yeah, they're good at getting up. Um, long list of things that we're always adding to it. Things that will make turkeys gobble. Guy was picking up his son from a play date. That's a word that used to not be around. What? What was the uh, what did, substitution? I don't know. When you were a kid, you didn't go on a play date. What the hell did you do? You hung out with your buddy, but... <laughs> <laughs> that's what I, I don't like... I resist, like in our household, I don't like my wife. Everybody uses that word. I don't, I don't, my kid even uses the name. I don't use that word. You don't say, you know what we should do? Arrange a play date. No, I say, you're going to go to your buddy's house? You'd be like, yeah, for a play date. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, picking up his kid. <laughs> that word was never, ever said. Yeah. I don't until, recall it. I don't recall it either. Yeah. I remember hearing a linguist um, 
I was listening to on NPR and they were interviewing a linguist and the linguist was explaining what they do, like what kind of thing they work on. And they were, and they said something interesting. They were giving something that they were interested in and they were saying, it wasn't that long ago. No waiter or waitress said, are you still working on that? But then there it was and it was everywhere. How does that happen? Right. Right. Yeah. Good question. Yeah. And there's a lot of things in language that are like that. You know, it's an interesting deal. Uh, clean plate club. Do you mm. guys ever say that in your households? Every night. Right? Yeah, every night. <laughs> okay. So never. It's a strictly enforced club, man. <laughs> never, never heard it anywhere else. Never heard it anywhere else. I'm working as a busser in high school in this. Uh, do you remember McKay's on the river? Mm-mm. Oh, yeah, I do. Right? I had a bunch of guns all over the place. Uh, a restaurant that is no longer a restaurant in Missoula. Um, I'm working as a busser in there. And I'm, you know, busing this guy's table. And and he said, yeah, I didn't think I'd be able to get through it, but I'm a member of the Clean Plate Club. That was the first time. And I was like, <laughs> Are we related? <laughs> I was like, where are you from? <laughs> yeah. I just, oh, because you grew up knowing it, but you had never heard it yeah, outside I grew, of your home. Yeah, right. Outside of the family. Like, mm. it just, like, did not exist for whatever reason. Never heard it. Yeah. So, anyways, this feller uh, picking up his kid from a play date. Just for you, you folks at home, his kid was playing with his buddy. <laughs> and uh, he's gathering his kid's bike to load it up into his truck. And the kickstand scraped the concrete driveway. Lo and behold, a Tom cuts out. Oh! So then he gets the family back out of the truck, has to scrape it against the pavement a whole bunch more, but eventually gets another gobble. <laughs> <laughs> Add it to the list. Add it to the list. Um. In in the law, so yeah, this one this one kills me, man. This kills me personally. We did a we did a piece about it. If you go to TheMeatEater.com, um, our our very own Sam Lundgren wrote up a piece on this. Uh, New Mexico passed a bill banning all trapping on public land, even live traps, even cage traps. Public land, public land trapping is now done. Signed into law, Democrat governor Grisham signed into law, passed 35 to 34. Ooh. All public. All. And you know what? Here's the part that gets me. This this is the part of this that becomes uh, conversation worthy. The law was nicknamed Roxy's Law because in 2018, a dog was killed in an illegally set snare. So a person violating with a snare catches and kills a dog. The logical extension of that is to ban, to make legal trapping illegal. The other part about this is law-abiding citizens, to penalize law-abiding citizens. Here's the other problem. New Mexico Fish and Game Commission had just enacted a bunch of new limits on trapping methods and equipment. Mandatory certification classes, prohibitions on trapping near population centers, prohibitions on trapping near trailheads. Never gave the rules, a ch- uh, uh, never even gave them a chance to, to take effect and see what the results would be. 
So in terms of all, all the things that are pursued, just, just so people get a little bit of understanding of this, I live near a Lynx recovery zone, okay? And in our Lynx recovery zone, you it, a, a trap that's big enough to catch a lynx, to big enough to hold and catch a lynx, which is smaller than most dogs and more fragile than most dogs, has to be, by law, four feet off the ground. Over a certain size, even if it is four feet off the ground, if it's big enough for a lynx, again, it also has to be in an, it's recommended to put it inside an enclosed box. And over a certain size trap has to be in a recessed enclosed box. There are a lot of things you can try um, before you do that. And the other part of this draws into question is uh, uh, again and again, when you see trapping bands, it's always, it's like dogs, dogs, dogs. And I don't understand if, if people, where does it become like, how did it become that it's like a God given right to have your dog not leashed wherever you want to have a dog not leashed? Why isn't it that there's rules governing how you manage your dog in certain areas during certain times of year? Well, the, the rule is, is your animal has to be under control, right? That doesn't mean a leash, but, you know, like Giannis's dog is born to run and yeah. run far beyond eyesight to follow his nose and do his job. But Giannis has a serious investment around his neck in a GPS tracking collar, and it's got a tone on there. And uh, you can you can zap him too. You can shock him, mm-hmm. right? Correct. Right. But now you just use the tone that says, "Better come back, or I'm going to zap you." Right. Mm-hmm. Um. And and I would argue that that is in control. Now right? in wilderness areas, you do have to have them on a leash. Most wilderness areas. There are some that have ex- exceptions, but is most, that right? Yep. I almost so, got a ticket once. So a houndsman can't operate in a designated wilderness in some designated wilderness well, areas, at least unless I, he wants to track on a leash. I don't know about that because they might have a um, exception for you know dogs that are pursuing or you know hunting. That that must be, man. Yeah, I've never never heard that rule. I mean, there there's I'm sure there's like some sensitive areas like watershed areas and stuff like that where they worry about. Oh no, like the uh, it's whatever. What's the one south of Vale there? is it the Eagle's Nest Wilderness? I think it is. But yeah, I'm like seven, eight miles back, not even on a trail, just kind of cruising along a hillside, kind of looking at benches and scouting for elk and just got the dog with me and and walk into a meadow and there's a forest service ranger. He <laughs> happened to be there because he was looking for... Um, dog owners? Uh pasture ground for horses because mm-hmm. they were in there doing some work on, on bridges and stuff that they needed to bring in equipment on, so they needed a spot to graze the horses. So that's what he was doing there. I was just cruising along scouting for elk. But we got to talking and as I'm leaving, he's like, by the way. <laughs> no way. Yeah. God, never heard of that oh. in my life. Boy, that guy could make a Serious living, walking around the Bob Marshall. <laughs> yeah, writing tickets. Um, well, again, I don't think I think that it's per wilderness. Area. Um, yeah, I'm sure it is. Uh, yeah, other thing that bug- bugs me. Okay, so like, um, you have a bad actor, an illegal trapper doing illegal things that uh, 
then gets this crazy enforcement brought down on all legal trappers. Mm-hmm. Makes no sense to me. Um, public lands are, are, for the most part, by definition, not even for, I mean, pretty much ubiquitous land of many uses zones. They're set aside for everybody. And, and that can be like everybody from miners to joggers, right? Like hard rock miners, not uh, yeah. spandex miners. Or what am I saying? Young drinkers. <laughs> Miners. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> um, and uh, God, there is an insane amount of public land in New Mexico. Yeah. I, I, I looked it up. I don't have it in front of me, but it's over 30 million acres of public land in, in New Mexico. I'll, I'll give you another couple of reasons why this, this tears me up inside. Uh I'm going to speak to a state that I know well, but just so people can begin to kind of understand um, a little bit about some of the, the, the mechanisms, like some, some of the tools at hand to mitigate conflict around trapping and, and dog stuff. We have setback rules, um, campgrounds, setback rules for roadways, setback rules for designated trails. Sometimes where you'll go into an area and you can't find a place that falls. If you got a road that switchbacks or a trail network that switchbacks around, you can't find a place to get clean of the setbacks. Meaning a setback, meaning they'll they'll take a trail. You go into your rags, and it says like this trail network. You can't do anything within um, three hundred feet of the either side of the trail. No setting anything. Um, a, a type of trap that used to get dogs be like big body gripping traps, three thirty counter bears. Uh, in our state, for instance, that thing has to be half submerged. You can't set it on dry ground. You take like cable restraints, um, snares. They have things like uh, states can come in and mandate that it has a relaxing lock, meaning that the lock doesn't get tighter, 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 tighter. It has to relax once it's closed. You put it, it has to have a deer stop on it, so it can only close to a certain diameter. Um, they have to have breakaway devices on them. Okay, like a certain poundage of, of, of pressure breaks the thing away. The relaxing thing to make it non-lethal. States will put in things that the snare can't have anything around the circle that would allow it to become entangled so that it becomes like really like a cable, so it functions as an re- animal restraint. There are so many things you can do. Um, so many things you can do that, that best practices that can be implemented um, it just seems to me like a wildly, yeah, just but, a wildly reactionary thing. And I don't think it's about dogs because this dog, this Roxy, that got killed by the illegal snare was killed near Santa Fe. I'll tell you what kills dogs in Santa Fe is coyotes. Are these people anti-coyote? That kills a lot of dogs. Coyotes kill dogs in LA. Why aren't they anti-coyote? Your, your trapping knowledge is great for people who want to like care an iota enough to actually know about trapping and, th- and that's not the people that are banning trapping like it's not the people who know about trapping or want to know about trapping um i guess my point with public land is i've hiked all over hell and gone in new mexico i've never seen a trapper or a dog walker <laughs> in, in any of it <laughs> right there's room enough for everybody and if you want to be invested in the fact that we have public lands you need to understand that those are set aside for everybody and man there's a lot of things that i do not do 
that are totally legal on public land. And if you're doing those in a respectful manner, man, I, I'll go to bat for you. Now, like, there's two, there's a lot of land to go around and to outright ban trapping just because you don't want to even understand it, it is just asinine. Yeah. And, like, all of your crazy crud we could come after, right? Your big e-biker, we can come after that and ban that on all public land. Big, you know... It, it just it's it's like foundationally destabilizing to the public land ethos yeah the powerful dog lobby man <laughs> but even live traps kind of blows my mind that's why it's like it's not god bless roxy roxy is being used as a proxy this is not about roxy no it is not that's I, a great I, I've, heard, is, I've heard plenty of stories of horses kicking dogs on the trail Oh, absolutely. Well, better ban horses. Yeah, better take all the I horses. I think we need to ban them. horses and ban coyotes. Um, I did <laughs> think ridiculous. it was funny uh, considering, like, especially you bring up Santa Fe. Santa Fe is a great town to walk around and do some people watching. Yeah. The uh, style, the distinctly southwestern style. Um, you talking about it? ponytails? I'm talking Little about turquoise. I'm talking about leather goods. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, because we're talking about trapping. Uh, there's a decent amount of fur around that town too, which is hilarious. Uh, I think, yeah, you got to find a new style Southwest. If you want to ban trapping, get rid of all of your leather goods. House bill 172 in Vermont. Vermont house bill 172 would ban all trapping other than a licensed wildlife control operator. Ban all trapping. Also ban hunting bears with the use of hounds. Can't You already can't bait in Vermont. So basically, you go like, oh, no one should be able to hunt bears. And you, you roll those in together. Hmm. Listen, uh, man, people, like, I am a believer. I am a believer in the slippery slope. I think that the slope is there. I think that it's slippery. Oh, absolutely, man. I mean, you just start whittling, especially in these cases, right? You just start whittling away the group of people that participate in these activities and and give a shit enough about it to, like, go to bat for them. If you were able to, whoever it is that's behind this, okay, and it's not, wouldn't be hard to find out. I'm guessing HSUS is almost certainly behind, Humane Society of the United States is almost certainly, like, involved here. Um, if you could sneak into their uh, bedroom and hear what they talk about in bed at night, it would be, <laughs> or not even in bed, over the phone with their colleagues. It's not like, oh, once we can get this bear hound thing taken care of, I'm going to hang up my spurs. Mm-hmm. The world will be perfect. I'll sleep. No. It's just like, they're like, they 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 have it in mind what they would like to end and it's 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 hunting and fishing and and to some extremes like pet ownership weirdly like they'd like to see that end and then you look and you'd be like what are the things we can accomplish right now what are the things we can accomplish right now anything to do with dogs is low hanging fruit anything to do with traps is yeah. low hanging if fruit. you're a pet owner and you support HSUS man you need to 
pull your head out of your butt and and take another look at who you're sending your money to. Not anybody listening to this podcast is doing that. I'm don't. No, but I guarantee you, there's folks in Vermont who aren't going to write in on the trapping bill, right? It's like you you folks better know your representatives well. Yeah, what would Clay Newcomb say? Guards gate, man. Is that what Clay Newcomb would say? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, he buddy. Would. He would Guard say the that. Gate. Guard the Come gate. Come on, Cal. Oh. Where you been? When something gets banished, Clay he like he wants to hang a painting of it upside down on a ceiling. It's symbolic to him. I don't really understand it. <laughs> All right. Hey, man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. So when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well, what's the catch? But it turns out there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, Go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Man, I'm just coming back uh, not too long ago from youth turkey season in Wisconsin. Now, last year at youth turkey season, it rained and snowed the whole time. This year at youth turkey season, it was in the 70s and even up to 80. So me and my kids are pouring it to it. And after a while, I realized they didn't drink anything all day and they haven't drank anything all day. Well, that's why it's important to get hydrated and have something you're going to like to help you, encourage you to get hydrated. Doesn't matter. Outdoor events, turkey hunting, playing sports, beach days, mountain adventures. Summer requires extraordinary hydration that's built for everyday dehydrating moments. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients in a single stick, it's clear why Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. Tear, pour, live more. One stick plus 16 ounces of water hydrates better than water alone. I'll say that again. Hydrates better than water alone. Turn your ordinary water into extraordinary hydration with Liquid IV. Get 20% off your first order of Liquid IV when you go to liquidiv.com and you use code MEATEATER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop better hydration today using promo code MEATEATER at liquidiv.com. Rain or shine, every day is a great day for fishing, right? And you probably got rain gear, but you shouldn't overlook sunny day gear. Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie has you covered on the sunniest day. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to, especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad-spectrum UV protection? 
We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow, so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head on over to Columbia.com slash PFG and shop all of their performance fishing gear. We've had a lot of people. Here's a great, here's a great tool for folks, you folks at home. A lot of people have written in. Uh, we're always a, a hobby of ours here at the Meat Eater Podcast is explain all the weird ways in which you're not allowed to barter and trade wildlife. And people, the minute you say like you can't sell wild game, the obvious question. I'm not, I'm not dogging on people who ask this question. Like, you, like you can't sell venison, right? I can't, I can't go to my buddy's farm, shoot a deer, shoot a wild deer, shoot a deer, butcher it, and then and then go down to the farmer's market and sell my deer meat. Like you can't very illegal to do that. You can't sell wild game um, from, from a food perspective. And so people bring up the really logical question. Well, why can you sell its antlers? Why can you sell taxidermy? Why can you sell its tanned hides? Like how do you make sense of this whole thing? Um, our, our colleague, Corey, who, if you write in, if you write us an email, um, and you want it to get red, you got to butter up. I would address it to Corey and butter him up a little bit. Corey Calkins, butter him up, and you'll, you'll, your email will get better handled. Uh, he found an interesting website. It's an online guide to selling taxidermy at estate sales and auctions. And I think it's, it helps with some of the helps with some of the legalities. Here's a question: If say say uh, I shoot a, a white-tailed doe. And you're like, I'll I'll take care of that for you. I'll cut it up for you. Okay. But the it's gonna cost me eighty bucks for bags and tape or whatever. Is that like if I give you eighty dollars to do that just to cover materials? You can do like no. You could you can shoot fine. a deer, give me the deer. I could take the deer you gave me down and pay for processing. You could shoot a deer and drop it off at the processor. I could go down and pay the processing fee and bring the whole thing home. But then I can't give you five. I don't give you five bucks for the deer. Gotcha. What would happen if you said, here's a good what one. What if you reimburse Let's her for the tag? You said, I'm going to sell you the hide. Here's a, here's a good one for a game warden. Someone will write in. You shoot a deer, okay? You get your dough. And you're like, I'll sell you that deer hide for a hundred bucks and I'll throw the deer in free. Then what happens? Yeah. That's a good one. That's a good one. What if <laughs> what if you're like I'm like Steve, I want I want uh your deer that you got this year. And you said, Yep, no problem. Are we role playing right now? But the no. tag cost me seventeen bucks. No. Right? You couldn't do that. No. A- in Alaska, they have a lot of what's called proxy hunting. Um and this is an interesting system. Alaska has proxy hunting where elderly individuals, say, can buy a tag. They could buy a deer tag or, or buy, give, make you their proxy and you hunt on their behalf, but the deer goes to them. 
it's applicable in some areas and not applicable in other, like applicable around some hunts and not applicable around others. You can proxy hunt. My elderly neighbor really wanted a doll sheep this year. <laughs> right? <laughs> that type of deal? Yeah, I don't think. But no, it's limited to, to very, it's limited. And I'm not a subject matter expert, but it's, but the proxy hunting is limited to more kind of meat and potatoes kind of yeah. issues, you know? Yeah, I'm guessing it's a way to, uh, you know, keep the subsistence mm-hmm. lifestyle alive and well. Yeah. So you can hunt for others. Really wanted a 10-foot-plus brown bear. <laughs> <laughs> Yanni, now that you're reviewing uh, estatesales.org, are you, just as you as you give it a cursory inspection, are you buying it? Or are you feeling like it is? Yeah, yeah. Most states are just, it's just saying any taxidermy may be sold. You know, as long as it was obtained legally, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, California now has uh, quite a few paragraphs here. One giant paragraph. Uh, Alaska had some extra rules. Colorado, everything besides bear gallbladders, bighorn sheep, bighorn sheep capes, velvet antlers. Hmm. Connecticut. Everything besides endangered species. Yeah, it's all here. EstateSales.org. A, l- a lot of black bear parts are uh, out in some in some states. So there you go. People that need to dig in deep and have all kinds of crazy questions, check that out. But I don't. I, I want to clarify. We're not vouching for it. A lot of times you look at like the, the problem I found when you try to go to things that give you state by state roundups. Even if you go like, what are Hunter's Orange laws in all the states, right? The damn laws change so fast and people don't go update the website. Absolutely. You got to kind of go like you want to go to the source. Yeah, I, I would think if you want if you really come down to brass tacks on some item on whether to buy it or sell it, I would contact probably US Fish and Wildlife. Here's a good email. He poses this as a what would we do? Um, but I don't really understand I don't really understand the question. Let me tell you the story. Bunch of guys are out jump shooting ducks on a neighbor's pond. Okay, you with me? You picturing? So yep. so far, yeah. And they have a dog. What, how do you say this dog? Drothar. Yeah. Okay, they have a Drothar. A drot. A lot of folks just refer to Drothar. It. They have a Drothar. They got to retrieve ducks. They sneak up on the little pond. Bunch of ducks jump up. A couple dozen jump. They 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 jump up. Bam! 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 Blowch. They get some ducks. The old man's yelling that he um he got one too. Now, the dog, here's where this story gets weird. The dog goes out to retrieve the ducks. The dog gets all the ducks, and then he wants to make he does a triple check to make sure they're not missing anything, nothing got away. As he's walking the edge of the pond to check around, um, because there seemed to be some uncertainty about who got what. The dog jumps a bedded deer, a yearling, and sets to chasing the drothar. Sets to chasing the deer. He's yelling and screaming at the the um, dog and has a shot collar on it. But then checks his pockets and realizes he left the controller in the truck. The deer jumps in the pond and starts swimming. The dog is on top of it. Fighting the deer. Well, killing the deer. 
But here's where the story gets weird. All of a sudden, the deer vanishes. Vanishes. And they're thinking, well, how could that be? Like, how does a deer, like a deer can't sink? Or, you know, they don't, they, they seem to float, kind of. They float near the surface. Um, they get so curious about it, his body strips down, jumps in and swims down, and dives down and realizes this pond is 15 feet deep and you can't see squat down in there. Another guy jumps in and he, th- these guys are free, th- he's a free diver. Another guy strips down and jumps in there and it's so cold he can't figure anything out. Comes back later with a scuba tank. They're divers, abalone divers and whatnot. Comes back later with a scuba tank, goes down to the bottom, and there's the deer lying dead on the bottom of the pond. Huh. Oh, shit. So yeah. they just had to know because they didn't believe that the deer just... Like how it just... Just sunk. Yep. So they pulled back straps out of it. Yeah, I was going to say it'd be well-preserved down there. And he wants to know, what would you do if your dog drowned a deer on your neighbor's farm pond? Um, I don't know. I feel like I would think that it was, if, if I drowned a deer on my neighbor's farm pond, I would, have a converse, I would have to have a conversation with the game warden. Yeah. But I'm guessing, I don't know. If, if you, I remember a, a friend of mine, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to, she, she's anguished enough about this, but a, a friend of mine was walking her dog on a very popular hiking trail and her dog killed a deer. Killed a fawn. Very popular dog hiking trail. Another, she was another, de- another she reason was, they should all be on leash. She was devastated that it happened. But I don't know what your obligations are. You, yeah, you, I, I kind of want to be like, I, I, I don't know. It was like the dog, man. Well, for sure. But again, you're supposed to have your dog under control, and they're certainly not allowed to harass wildlife. And I think that killing wildlife c- constitutes harassment. Um, so I think technically, yeah, you're probably in, you and your dog, you're responsible for your dog. So you're in trouble for that. I would think, I mean, I'm no game warden, but I would think that they would say, Cal, I'm guessing this is a one-time thing for snort. You're not going to let that happen anymore. And if it does, then you're going to get a ticket. Yeah. I would imagine there, there's got to be some sort of a harassment. Well, you know, animal Mm-hmm. whatever but there, I mean there's got to be I mean I, I know in the state of Montana it's, it is legal to shoot uh, dogs chasing deer yeah so there's got to be some, some way to get a ticket for it too do snap turtles bite underwater we were talking about that because it's like a, it's a com- like I grew up in snap turtle country as many people do, and we mess with snapping turtles a lot in, in trap form and stuff. And it was it was said that uh, they won't bite you underwater. And we used to, my my dad had a very good friend Al Cole, and he would look for snapping turtles by feeling blind under undercut banks, just feeling with his hands till he felt the shell. Then he'd feel the shell, and you could you know how they have the the points on the back of the shell. He would find he'd feel the shell and could tell by the, the the points on it what way the turtle was facing. And then he'd identify the back and he'd just reach under and, and grab the tail and he said that turtle just lay there the whole time. He'd, he'd get the tail and then jack the turtle back out. 
Uh, Never got bit. No, I'll tell you a story. But, uh, quick, quick interjection. Um, I was checking my turtle traps one time, and there was a turtle that he, he, the biggest snap turtle I ever caught was had gotten the door of the trap messed up and couldn't get in, but was trying so hard to get like poking around. And somehow he had, like, I used to make them out of like, uh, you know, that hog wire with the rectangular. Yeah. Yeah. And which is stout stuff. Yeah. And he had, I don't know, him or another turtle had somehow like got the door jacked up. Not that they know where the door is. They're just going everywhere. And eventually it's a funnel and eventually they poke their way in and they get caught. But he had gotten it jacked up where he couldn't get into it. The door was disabled. So I see the, the turtle, the, the trap kind of like bouncing, shaking. It's this huge turtle. He was so intent on getting to the bait that I was able to paddle up in a canoe and grab him by the tail. And this turtle was so big. I, I'm not joking. I was in high school. Um, I could not get him into my canoe. <laughs> try as I might. And I had to hold that son of a bitch by the tail with kind of the tail over the gunnel of the canoe and one-handed paddle myself. <laughs> one-handed paddle myself to the bank, climb out and drag that thing up and get it in the back of the truck. And I brought it to another commercial turtle guy and he said that was the biggest turtle he'd ever seen. Biggest snap turtle he'd ever seen. Nice. What? Yeah. A, did you weigh it? I didn't. I remember him saying, uh, I don't want to say it because it sounds ridiculous, but he bought it. He, he was a commercial guy and he bought the turtle from me. So uh, what's funny about this, this person that rode in who's a fisheries, they're, they're, they're a fisheries technician um, in North Carolina, and they're doing these survey works for freshwater mussels. He says a lot of times you're able to do your survey work visually, but sometimes you need to do it by feel or you're poking around. And he brings up an interesting observation that, that's like, I, I hadn't really thought of, but it's true. Like, he talks about how a lot of clothes, clothing, right, winds up in streams. And he describes that look that it gets. You know what I mean? When it gets full of sand. Yeah. Like any kind of fabric and stuff, like laying in the bottom of a stream, it gets full of sand. He said he has twice felt or poked what he thought was a clothing item. But it was that weird, like, you know, that the snappers get that kind of moss that grows on them and it gets like that sandy feeling. And he said, you can do all manner. When he finds a turtle doing his survey work and that turtle thinks it's hidden, he said, you can do all manner of manipulation on that turtle. And a lot of times it's hard to get them to do anything. And when you get them to do anything, they want to get away. But he says, the minute you get that turtle out of the water, he's ready to fight. But he said, underwater, fighting's not on his mind. Huh. He's like, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna hide, I'm gonna get away, but you get him up out of the water, and he's like, now I'm fighting. God, it's just so bizarre to me. The animal is designed to bite shit underwater. To bite shit underwater, <laughs> it is, right? But just apparently not defensively. But when we talked about this before, I brought up another thing that happened: turtle trapping. Is I had a turtle in the trap, having a vicious battle with a turtle out of the trap. And they were definitely biting each other underwater. So, like, territoriality, sure. Eating, sure. But apparently, <laughs> when, you're, when you're... Somebody gently caressing your <laughs> carapace and feeling your points? Is not fighting. <laughs> That's not worth fighting. That ain't fighting words in the turtle world. Okay, Whit Fosberg, waiting patiently. What we're going to do is one more, uh, one more thing to touch off on. We've talked about this too many times now. This is probably 
probably the last corneal dermoid thing. The corn the corneal dermoid uh, fixation began when some people started sending in pictures of hairy eyeballs. Hairy eyeball disease. It all happened where a buck got a hairy eyeball disease. Each hair, each eyeball turns into hair. Put it on Instagram, then a guy sent in a cow elk kill with like big, long, like three-inch yeah. hairs growing out of its eyes. It's gross. The buck that got the corneal dermoids eventually went blind, and they had to euthanize it. Like a blind deer running around, hair, his eyeballs full of hair. A lot of guys have written in about this. Guy wrote in, he had a golden retriever, has corneal dermoids. He thought for sure the dog, the dog would be like, you know, couldn't see. He had a feeling he couldn't see, didn't know what to do. Then he realized that it could track an airplane in the sky. And that's the first thing that teed him off, that despite it having these messed up eyes, would still pick off, you know, was still visually aware of what's going on. But this guy gets into the human element of it. And uh, a guy wrote in that there's a wildlife and fisheries guy at Clemson University, a student there. He has corneal dermoids in his eye. You're born with it. His aren't hairy, but they're white. He says he can still see good enough to hunt. He's especially sensitive to light. Huh. He was surprised to hear that it affects deer. I was surprised to hear that it affects folks. This other guy wrote in, he had two boys and they were twins. And he said, the only way you could tell these two boys apart is one had a real pointy nose. They eventually bring him in. I don't know what happened. They bring him in. He had a pointy nose because he had... Nas- he had a nasal dermoid. Required a fairly extensive surgery to remove it. It was in the tip of his nose. Traveled up his navel cavity into his skull, real close to his brain. They removed this whole thing, and the surgeon said it was shaped like a barbell from having traveled up the nasal cavity. Bunch of hair growing out of it. Jeez. Born with it. The surgeon said they sometimes even have teeth. Mm. And I remember, man, my brother had a girlfriend. And I remember, and I, I never really thought about this. He had a girlfriend, and she was saying that they one time had to have a surgery, and they pulled out a little ball out of her that had teeth on it. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> never looked at her the same way t- again. <laughs> Nothing against it. God yeah. bless her. A little ball full of teeth inside of her. What if she saved it? I, I really thought you were saying, the guy had identical twins. And the only way you could tell one from the other was the hairy one had hairy eyeballs. <laughs> By God, that's, that's Chad. So they were pretty easy to tell apart then. All right. Whit Fosberg from TRCP. Whit, talk us through, give us like an update, DC update. <laughs> uh, well, we're about 100 days into a new administration. Which, oh, uh, that's like a big, that's a big, a big, uh, yeah, yeah, big milestone. That's a milestone. Yep. And Do you know where that comes from? I don't understand how that came to be a milestone. Just a nice round number. Yeah, I think right now it's a round number is something that's been used for many, many you know, presidencies in a row to sort of gauge initial first step and priorities. So I think, you know, it's, but I don't know where it came from originally. Do you feel that a uh, hundred days is fair just from your uh, oh, observations of how yeah, deep? Yeah, because I mean, it's, it's really symbolism at this point is, you know, what you'll see what the administration's top priorities are. You will see the general reaction that that gets from the general public as well as from Congress. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in Congress, you know, again, you have the top things tend to be the first things they deal with. 
the most important, the most visible, the highest priorities for whatever party's in power. Yeah. So I think it's, you know, it, it, the way we tend to look at it with administration is first hundred days, first year, and then four years. Yeah. And, you know, you can sort of break down any sort of set of priorities in those three buckets. And that's when we, when we did transition plans for both uh, Biden as well as Trump, too. And we laid out our priorities in all in those three sets. When you do transition plans, and I remember seeing transition plans because you have to draw up, right? It's like when the Super Bowl, right? They make T-shirts for each win. Yep. Um, you have to draw up transition, obviously, to be prepared, right? No matter what's going to happen. Yeah, we get them to the campaigns, you know, well before the election too. Oh, you send it to the camp. Yeah, oh, we okay. send them both. Yep, send them to the campaigns to really lay out what we think the, our community's priorities are. But do how different are the two letters? Oh, they're pretty different. Because <laughs> you know where... Well, I mean, a lot of it's phraseology. I mean, we knew, for example, if it was going to be Trump too, we weren't going to lead with climate change. Yeah. Yeah, we would talk about, you know, a variety. We'd still talk about farm bill programs. We would talk about things that directly affect climate. But we certainly changed the way we phrase that. Mm-hmm. And we also think about, you know, things like, you know, the meat and potato wildlife stuff, like migration corridors would bubble up to like number one because, you know, they started it. They have you know, pride of ownership in it. You know, they can do things to expand it. So it's, you know, you, I think, you know, and then, you know, there are certain things that are just off the table, you know, with, for example, a Trump too, that we knew it weren't going to be worth pushing for and why hit our heads against the wall about it. Yeah. So we're going to do things that we think we can achieve. And, you know, so it was different. And we have this sort of a second term of a, of a continuing administration. It's not going to be as long. So, for example, I think one we sent to the Trump team was like, 80 pages or 60 pages and the one that went to the biden team was probably an additional 30 or 40 pages because you already had a bunch of you'd already been laid for work, four years worth of groundwork with right. the, the yeah, administration exactly. yeah. yeah so i, I want to get to where we're at now but i want to talk a little bit about where we uh a little bit about where we'd been mm-hmm. you mentioned that the trump administration had a lot of ownership over the migration corridor right and Bernhardt was heavily involved. Yeah, and that the, actually the, came the, out. The Secretary when, of Interior know, was very heavily involved. Yeah, and that came out with Zinke was still, you know, Secretary that was first dropped, you know, Secretary Order 3362, which basically directed the Western states to identify their top three big gay migration corridors, and it limited it to elk, mule deer, and pronghorn. Mm-hmm. And uh, then, you know, it directed the federal agencies to coordinate with the states to conserve those areas. I mean, it was a really good idea. They put some money behind it. National Fish and Wildlife Foundation came in with some money for it. And it's the kind of thing that we wanted to make sure if it wasn't, you know, Trump, if Biden got elected, that they didn't immediately come in and just say, you know, Trump did this, must be bad. Well, that's, that's what yeah. I'm wondering about. Uh, that's what I was going to ask, that, that exact question. Yeah. Are you, do you do a lot of work to try to hand things off and be like, no matter how you feel about the, the, your predecessor, yeah, this was this is the right thing here. Absolutely. Like, like, yeah. yeah, I mean, it, it, I think we would define success not by how you know far the pendulum swings each time, but by things that are actually durable that you know withstand changes in, in the political you. winds. Yeah. And I think migration corridors is you know a classic example of that. You know, it makes sense on a number of different levels. From you know, if you're a big game hunter, which was obviously a priority of the Trump administration, you know, something that's really important. If you're in favor of biodiversity and Letting animals adapt to a changing climate, you've got to be supportive of this. You know, so it's, again, depends on how you look at it, but it's something that should not be a partisan and proven it hasn't been. I mean, Deb Holland in her confirmation hearings for Secretary of the Interior talked about how important it was. So, you know, I think that we've succeeded in that, just making it sure that people didn't think it was a political issue, but it made sense regardless of administration. 
And there were certain things that the Trump guys wanted to do they never got to do. They proposed adding wild sheep and moose to that and then got a bunch of blowback from agricultural producers, so took that off the table. You know, we'd love to see the order expanded to that. We'd like to see more money you know, that could go to, for example, private landowners who are really an important part of preserving migration corridors. You know, how do you get them to make it in their interest as opposed to them being the burden of these animals that go through their property? You know, for them to come in and retrofit fences, to you know, compensate them for the elk that come through and eat their crops, you know, things like that. But make them an important part of the solution. So I think the Trump guys, you know, it was a great idea, but they had just really gotten started on this. And ideally it gets expanded and works even better, you know, now that we're in the next four years. So with the first 100 days uh, about up or up, what, what's your, what are your impressions? Is it just a completely new set of priorities and, and you got to kind of go in a different direction if you want to get anything done? Yeah, you know, I think that's it's not a completely new set of priorities in some areas, and that's a good example of the corridors. But I think it's, you know, a lot of the emphasis is going to be changed, and as opposed to making that scary, we want to make that an opportunity. Mm-hmm. You know, for example, climate. Uh, you know, we have, we've been working the last couple of years to get, you know, our community, and we've had 42 different groups send a letter to Congress saying, Congress, you need to engage in climate. You, and part of the solution needs to be land and water side of it, sequestration, resilience, adaptation, which is all important for climate in terms of sucking carbon out of the air, making our coastal communities more resilient, cleaning water, but it's also great for fish and wildlife. Yeah. And 42 uh, groups uh, mm-hmm. explain that. So the way we work is we're a partnership of, we have 60 formal partners, partners within the umbrella of TRCP, the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership. And, you know, we're a coalition of the willing, you know, so we don't force anybody to take a position on anything, but we lay out what we think makes some sense. And uh, we had about two years of working on climate, and we put together this five-page statement or six-page statement that went to Congress that laid out our principles. We, you know, created a website so the folks, everyone could understand what it is we want. And then, you know, we asked groups to, you know, join on this, and 41 groups within the TRSP partnership joined on that letter that went to Congress and have their you know, names and logos on the website, which people can see at trcp.org. When you're doing something like that, I know we're, we're straying a little bit from mm-hmm. what we're talking about. When you're putting that together, are you finding that there are people who uh, don't get back to you or they say like, don't put my name on that? There was, uh, there were some people that just, you know, they didn't want to have discussion and, you know, it just weren't really engaged. Yeah. A lot of others, it's, they come in it from a very particular, you know, viewpoint. You know, if you're, you know, Fez is forever, they really want to see this as a vehicle to expand the conservation reserve program. If you're Ducks Unlimited, you're going to want to see it as a way to preserve more wetlands, restore more wetlands. So every group comes into it with their own lens. And so the danger of any one of these is that it becomes this unwieldy beast because every single priority is put in there. And the fact that it's only five and a half pages or whatever it was when it went in, it was actually a triumph because we kept that into certain key areas. And, you know, I think we accommodated concerns, you know, any of the groups that were there. Now, other groups like, you know, DU didn't sign it, but they're they're doing their own one. Boone and Crockett didn't sign it, but they did their own as well that is honestly stronger than the one we have. Hmm. You know, so Nature Conservancy is a formal partner. They did their own. 
So the 41 signed with us and sent that letter to Congress, those are the folks that just collaborated on this effort. It's not a full snapshot of everybody that's dealing with climate. And that doesn't mean that a third of those groups aren't interested. No. They might have, be, they have their own... Yeah, exactly. They're handling yeah, they're, it for themselves. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, or they're just, you know, they don't really say that in their wheelhouse. Yeah. Like, you know, AFL-CIO is a formal partner of ours. You know, they're, they're dealing with climate in a whole bunch of different ways, you know, that, so this isn't something they're going to sign on to. Yeah. But in terms of overall impressions of the first hundred days, I think, you know, I think we're optimistic. I think that they have, you know, pretty good people put in. I look at over at Department of Agriculture, Tom Vilsack. You know, obviously, he was Secretary of the Interior before, governor of Iowa, senator from Iowa, you know, knows this stuff really well. He brought in Robert Bonney to oversee, you know, basically the, you know, Farm Service Agency, NRCS, as well as the Forest Service. You know, Robert is an old hand on this. He was on our board for a while, a hardcore hunter, fisherman, and, you know, very pragmatic about how do we get these farm bill programs working better than they have. You know, we've lost a ton of acres out of CRP in the last four years just because, you know, Sonny Purdue and the Trump Department of Agriculture, it wasn't a priority. They'd rather just sort of send people checks, you know, in response to the tariff fight with China than actually ask them to do something with that money. Whereas, you know, we want to see, you know, we, instead of just sending $30 billion out to agricultural producers just to make them whole in a tough economic time, you know, I think things like Conservation Reserve Program, where they actually were doing something, they were setting aside marginal lands, they're improving it for wildlife, for water quality. And those are the things I think we think make a ton of sense. And I think we're going to, you know, the folks at the Department of Agriculture now will agree. So we already know that plans are underway to amend the current sign-up for CRP to make it more lucrative. Oh, is that right? Really? Yeah. So, so they you, will, you think that'll go down? That'll go down. And we'll, it, we'll see We'll see a more you know, a, a, a CRP program that makes more sense for farmers. Yeah. And I think, you know, Robert and the team at USDA are working on this right now. We don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but they recognize they have a real problem and they're expecting another, if they don't do something, another two, three million acres will move out of the program this year. So they have to do something. My uh, first experience with, with CRP, like really understanding what it, what it is, was watching, um, the, the end of those first round rounds of contracts in, in my like hunting lifetime and watching uh, all this uh, prairie and sagebrush get torn up in eastern Montana and seeing an, an, an immediate effect on antelope specifically and just going from like more antelope and, and truly like fewer hunters because people were so dispersed across eastern Montana um, it was like the good old days of antelope by far and away. And it, mm. and it just, man, it tanked and you could just see it. Yeah. Yeah. And this is the same story in Dakotas with pheasant, uh, you know, duck populations in a variety of different places. So, I mean, this CRP is a program that benefits, you know, sportsmen in a variety of different ways. But I mean, you know, we see it as, you know, if you want to deal with climate and you want to, if you think about climate and the overall solution to climate, you can stop emitting today. But to get ahead, you're going to have to suck a bunch of carbon out of the atmosphere. And the best way to do that is through natural you know, mechanisms like you know, forests and you know, you know, putting in cover crops instead of having bare ground over the winter. You know, things like that that are, if you go to eastern shore of Maryland, cover crops, everybody does it. You go to Iowa, nobody does it. And so we just need to give, create some incentives. It's not bad for the producers. It's just not the way they've been doing things. So give them an incentive to do that sort of work, uh, which is going to, 
suck out a certain amount of carbon. Overall, about you know, they're saying about 20% of the solution are these natural things that naturally suck carbon out of the atmosphere. You know, we talk a lot about you know, sort of the poor state of a lot of the national forests in the national forest system that haven't been logged, that are monoculture, that are beetle infested, that are waiting to blow up and you know, burn. And if we, you know, if you're serious about dealing with climate, you're going to go in there and you're going to do some selective harvest. You're going to do some areas. You're going to restore some of those areas that are pretty degraded now. And that's going to help wildlife and sportsmen because you'll start developing that mosaic of habitats that you really want. I mean, we have roadless, we have wilderness, but we also want to have areas that are actively managed. And, you know, that is far better, you know, than, you know, a, a stagnant forest. I was with a group of other, you know, conservation, you know, CEOs and Louisiana talking with a bunch of the uh, private timberland folks and Dave Tenney who runs the National Association of Forest Owners you know laid out a statistic that managed forests you know private managed forests are seven times take out seven times more carbon than their counterparts on the national forests hmm. and uh, and I would argue too that you know they're probably better for if you want that mosaic of habitats and some early successional forests, it's better for wildlife too. Now, nobody wants to return to the old days of spotted owls and clear cuts and salmon watersheds and all the rest, but there's a happy median in there someplace. Oh, for sure. My, uh, you know, a friend of mine in the forest service, he uh, had a stretch of like seven years attempting to do a prescri prescribed burn in an area, you know, and he, it just like through you know, you got to meet a lot of uh, criteria to get a burn going, and um, it's even more more strict in the on the government side of things. So, yeah, and it's just there's still a cottage industry out there of folks who just litigate any active management on national forests, and yeah, you know, that's we're, we're going to have to deal with that. We're going to have to make it a little bit easier to actually cut wood to do prescribed burns, and obviously, if you do a small prescribed burn, you're you're heading off that catastrophic burn that we see in California and other places. And this summer is going to be bad. I mean, the moisture levels across the West are lousy. So, you know, we need to get on top of this. And Robert Bonney at USDA understands that. And when we fix the, uh, the fire funding fiasco at the Forest Service, when until, I guess, about five years ago, every time, you know, there was a catastrophic wildfire, fighting that came out of the Forest Service's core budget. Congress changed that to create an emergency account like we do for all other natural disasters, tornadoes, hurricanes. And, you know, because, you know, that change has been made, it gives the Forest Service about a half million, half billion dollars annually in additional revenues to actually go in and do habitat management. You know, for wildlife, for fire prevention, to remove invasive species. So, you know, part of the challenge that Robert is going to be facing now at USDA is getting that up to speed, getting that money on the ground, which is, is that it sounds difficult. like a big number, but is it like is that oh, yeah, a, is that's that, a very big number. that's like they can do a lot with that? They can do a lot with that. Yeah, and there's and it's not that you know they you know it all goes out to commercial sale. I mean, the Turkey Federation, you know, Mule Deer Foundation have been doing stewardship contracting where they actually go in and do the work. You know, they get some money to do it, but it's not the Forest Service doing this stuff. So, you know, Turkey Federation has done remarkable projects around the country, you know, using the stewardship contracting authority to go in and improve habitat. You know, so I think there are different models of how you can do it, but I think there's a general consensus on the science community, certainly, and on the sportsman's community, that, you know, we need more active management in a lot of places, and that dovetails perfectly with climate solution. 
Rain or shine, every day is a great day for fishing, right? And you probably got rain gear, but you shouldn't overlook sunny day gear. Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie has you covered on the sunniest day. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to, especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad-spectrum UV protection? We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow, so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head on over to Columbia.com slash PFG and shop all of their performance fishing gear. Man, I just got a new truck. Before I even drove my new truck anywhere, I wasn't going to drive it anywhere until I put a deck system in it. That's how, that's what a believer I am in decked. I always thought they were a great deal, but now they're even better because they have redesigned their drawer system in storage cases from the ground up. It's like, I didn't know there was a problem with them. I don't know, they seem great to me. Just an improvement on perfection. The new system made in the USA gives you 10 to 30% bigger drawers to fit more gear. It's lockable and secure, right? Weatherproof storage for all your gear. You build it right into your truck bed. You still have a truck bed you can put stuff on. The top deck of the new system has eight D-ring tie-downs integrated into the steel. So you have really burly anchor points to hook stuff down on your bed. So you got to slam on the brakes or take off real fast. Nothing shifts. And like I said, they're, they're, they're D-rings that lay real flat. Like you can still slide stuff right across the deck it doesn't catch on the d-rings the d-rings are built in the drawer system fits any truck or van on the road in the usa from the last 20 plus years deck is a game changer there's no more like leaving stuff at home that you wish you had with you the stuff i want in my truck is in my truck out of the way and secure go to deck.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping Get incredible deals on premium cuts from butcher box do you like free protein for a whole year Well, deals this good are hard to come by at the grocery store. I, at home, well, I got two freezers, but you know what I'm saying. I like to have a freezer stocked full of stuff. I like feeling prepared, man. When I come home and it's time to make dinner, I like to go in. I got all my proteins lined up in there. Just makes me feel good about stuff. And with ButcherBox, you'll always be prepared with meat in the freezer. It means fewer trips to the grocery store. Delivered right to your doorstep with free shipping always. You get a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value. You'll get exclusive deals as a member, too. Sign up at ButcherBox.com slash MeatEater and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free and every order for a year. So every box you get has that in it free for a year. Sign up today at ButcherBox.com slash MeatEater. Make sure you use code MeatEater to choose your free for a year offer plus $20 off your first order. I know you don't speak for them at all, but uh, take some, take a group like uh, National Wild Turkey Federation. Have they, are they articulating specifically a desire to address climate? Yes. They they, yeah. they hadn't before. And it's because uh, it pisses people off, man. Yeah, I mean, it's just the the word has been so politicized. Yeah, and you know, people just retreat into their camps. 
And, you know, Becky Humphreys, who's, I think, you know, terrific CEO, and she's on my board uh, with you, Steve. I mean, she's, you know, understands this. She comes from a science background, and she's not going to talk to her membership about climate solutions. She's just going to talk about active management. She's going to talk about, you know, doubling the size of the f- conservation programs in the Farm Bill, which is what we're calling for in our statement to Congress. So instead of $6 billion a year in conservation, kick that up to somewhere around $12 billion. And that's not all CRP. It's, you know, the Regional Conservation Partnership Program. It's EQUIP. It's a bunch of other good stuff that the Farm Bill does. You know, whatever makes the most sense in a given region. But we want more land in conservation and less land, you know, being, especially in marginal habitats, being converted to row crops. Yeah, you can tell a real good story about uh, what natural prairie grasses do or native prairie grasses do for uh, poults, right? Absolutely. You grow a lot of birds. Well, and then if you you, you do a soil segment on those, you look how deep those roots are in native grasses versus introduced, you know, grasses. And, you know, that's where all that carbon is, is going down in those deep root systems. You look at soil carbon maps of the U.S., the most important area is that prairie pothole region. There is a ton of carbon in those soils, and every time they get plowed up, that's getting released. So we ought to be restoring the areas we've already trashed, as well as protecting the rest of that prairie pothole region. And if you care about climate, and if you care about natural infrastructure, downwater, downstream water quality, you want to protect those areas. So move over from, in terms of the 100-day picture and who they've got in place, from the Department of Agriculture to Interior. So like what, are your, yeah. what are your sort of gut, gut impressions about the nominee? Well, you know, I didn't Not really, nominee, though. Yeah, confirmed. no, she's nominated yeah. confirmed. Deb Holland, who was a congresswoman from New Mexico. She was only had one term in Congress. Um, but she's, as she likes to say, she's a 35th generation New Mexican, you know, Native American. You know, her family grew up eating venison. Um, you know, so the challenge that she's going to face is, you know, it's a really political, a really controversial, you know, complicated agency. You have everything from Bureau of Indian Affairs to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management. There is a lot of things that fall underneath the Department of the Interior. I didn't know that the Bureau of Indian Affairs is still in Interior. Oh, yeah. I mean, if there's... An, Let's, we yeah, don't I feel do, like we don't it do seems Indian, like that would have been... We don't do Indian issues, but that is, if there is one agency that could use some help and one people that could use some help, it's the Native American community. I mean, when I worked in you know, Congress, I spent a fair bit of time on reservations of South Dakota. And you know, the average person just has no idea of you know, how lousy it is you know, currently. So, I mean, some you know, tribes have got it figured out and do a really good job and have plenty of money. But others just have, I mean, we were trying to get running water, this is back in the 90s, you know, into, you know, some of the Sioux reservations in South Dakota because mm-hmm. they didn't have running water. Do you, uh, you know, so we've seen the Biden administration um, kind of reverse a lot of Trump era rules. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think we're going to see um, Deb Holland kind of reinstate or, or try to get back a bunch of that monument ground? Yeah, I think she's. Uh, I think she was just in Utah, you know, visiting Bears Ears and doing her own listening really? tour. Yeah. So I suspect you're going to see those, you know, Bears Ears and Grand Staircase, you know, reestablished. You think the, the original? Pre- yeah, there may be some, you know, tweaks here and there. Yeah. But no, those will get you know pushed back. There's a, a marine monument off of New England that yeah. was taken away. I think you'll get that back. So I think there will be. But you think they'll open up the Bears Ears thing again? Oh yeah. Huh. 
So, no, I think they'll be doing that. I think the bigger issues are going to be things like oil and gas development on federal lands. Yeah. I mean, when she was, uh, you know, Congresswoman, she had called for, you know, ending oil and gas development on public lands, or maybe it was during the campaign. But, you know, but was friend, But was friendly to wind and solar on public. Oh, sure. And, you know, that's, you know, she, you know, that's, you know, sort of the coming, you know, she has a fairly liberal district in New Mexico. You know, that's the you know feeling that renewable energy is better than, you know, oil and gas. And I would agree with that. But the problem is that you can't just turn off the spigot on oil and gas. I mean, it's going to be around for a while. And, you know, you know, my, my truck's only a year old. I'm going to be driving it for a while. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the issue isn't, you know, where it comes from is demand on long term. Because you could shut down oil and gas you know, development on public lands, and all you're really doing is screwing states like New Mexico, which have a lot of oil and gas on public lands, and shifting all of that over to Texas or to North Dakota, okay. you know, which don't have a ton of public lands. So you're not really solving any problem. You're just screwing you know, certain areas. I think a much more thoughtful approach is you deal with the, you know, you, you deal with the issues of methane leakage. Um, you just make the oil and gas development of public lands better than it has been. You get smarter about where you're going to site you know, oil and gas development because there's also a ton of areas that have already been leased. I mean, that, you know, the cat's out the, you know, the, the door, the cattle's, you know, the horse is out of the barn, whatever you want to, analogy you want to use. So, again, even if you were to say no new leasing starting today, there is still a ton that's going to happen. So the issue really is, you know, how do we do it better? And when, you know, like Ken Salazar was Secretary of the Interior under Obama, they put together something called Master Lease Planning, which was before you develop an area. And this could be you know, oil and gas, it could be solar, it could be wind. You take, look at a big area and you decide the areas where you can have development, where you'd never want to have development, where you can consolidate roads, pipelines. You know, you just be much smarter about the development as opposed to, you know, when you know, Trump came in, it was under the, and Zinke would talk about energy dominance. The idea was energy development is going to take precedent over every other use on public lands. Mm-hmm. And they're not, we're not going to get in its way wherever it wants to go. Well, I mean, that was more of a political stance, but it just, you know, creates problems because you're inviting controversy when you're, you know, offering leases in core sage grouse habitat in the middle of migration corridors. You know, so if, you know, I think our sense is, and this is probably what probably will shake out in interior, is there will continue to be oil and gas development we've just done very differently than it has in the past. Uh, do you have concerns about working with Holland, or are you, are you optimistic about it? Oh, I'm optimistic. Yeah. I mean, uh, I've, I've spent very little time with her. She'd been really good on her issues, but I just didn't know her personally. But mm-hmm. then during the, you know, when she got nominated and then until her, you know, basically you know, approval by the Senate, I think I had three different meetings with her. And, and it was, you know, and, and she was great. I mean, she didn't know a ton. She didn't pretend to know a ton, but she took copious notes. And every time we met with her, she was better than last time. Mm-hmm. She understood what we were talking about. She was able to prioritize it. I think she valued our community as an important ally in her confirmation. And we're very happy to give her the benefit of the doubt and work with her. The guy they just brought in is number two at Interior. Or he still has to be confirmed. Tommy Boudreau, he was in the Obama administration good guy, you know, solid conservation credentials, knows the department well. So she's been smart in putting people in key positions around there who really know how that department works because she doesn't. I mean, this is, she's brand new there. And, you know, Zinke had that same issue that, 
he was, had trouble being effective within the department because he was a complete outsider. Yeah, got and, it. Uh, and that's part of the reason he brought Dave Bernhard in, who had been you know solicitor during the Bush administration, knew the agency, and things you know improved dramatically. You know, in the Trump administration, when Bernhardt came in, because he was a stabilizing, steadying hand, he understood what the agency could and couldn't do. I remember when, you know, after he got picked to be Secretary of the Interior, you know, we had a conversation. I mentioned Energy Thomas. He said, "You will never hear me, you know, say that again, hmm. because it's not legal. We are a multiple-use agency. We have to. We can't just arbitrarily pick one of these things and make it more important than everything else." I came to like him quite a bit. Um... I mean, there's plenty of things that, that I didn't agree with them about, but I did like and valued their uh, stance on expanding access and doing some other things that rolling back some things. Like there was a thing, a thing in Alaska that I found particularly irksome where they stripped the state of certain management practice abilities if they wanted to do it. I thought that was a, a bogus play, and they moved that back. But do you do you think that in the new administration there's going to be like will, will sportsmen's access be a thing that ever comes out of their mouths? Absolutely. You think so? I think uh, yeah. You know, they were. I got a call from Interior that they were going to. I don't know if they've done it yet or whether they're going to do it you know, shortly. But they're going to open up another ninety, you know, areas within the refuge system for oh, expanded okay. hunting and fishing. See, I, th- I was going there and I was yeah. afraid you were going to tell me that that would be rolled back. No, no, really. And that was one of the things we made sure that this. This is something Obama did. This is something that Trump did. This is something you guys ought to do. And it's, you know, a lot of it is not, you know, sort of rocket science. It's, you know, the areas are closed for no good reason and have been historically, and nobody really knows why, just never been open. And uh, then the other issue was, and I give the Trump guys a lot of credit on this, you may have, you know, particular rules on the refuge that are totally different than next door on state land or general statewide regs. And that may make sense, but... If you're going to make them different, have a reason for them being different. Don't just have them different for being different because it just makes it harder for all of us to participate and to know what the rules are. So that, you know, Trump guys did a good job of basically conforming the refuge rules with the state rules. And I hope that continues. Mm-hmm. We, earlier, we were discussing New Mexico's new trapping ban. Uh, I understand, like I, sitting here, I understand perfectly well Um why that's not TRCP's fight. Okay. I, like, I, I, I want to hear from you why it's not. And then I want to question you why it's not a little bit because um, it's a hunter-angler based conservation organization. And I know that you can't get bogged down in, in, in the constant legislation and referendums about me- what you would call method of take issues. So like how the particulars of how people access game. But at a point, if rights continuously get stripped down, it will become an existential thing for you. True. So the way, you know, first we're, we focus on federal policy and not state policy. So that's an easy out as to why we wouldn't engage in something like that. Second, you know, we've always, you know, tend to defer to the states in terms of fishing game management because states have always had primary jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we don't want to sort of, I'd like to keep, you know, Congress out of it as much as humanly possible in terms of every now and then you have something like, you know, John Tester and Mike Simpson having to deal with the wolf issue and the greater Yellowstone. But Congress should not be in the business of dictating fish and wildlife management. That should be left to the professionals within the states. 
And now if states, you know, start going, you know, very much down a bad path, then, yeah, maybe we have to rethink, yeah, our stance. Maybe we do have to engage with some of those, but, because I agree with you. But like, if I you got say, to a point where you thought, wow, it really is a slippery slope. Yep. And we've slid off the slope. I, I could just, no, no, I, no, I'm I not inviting you to do it, but I, I but... I think I've expressed this to you in the past. Yeah, yeah. I have a small amount of, like, I have a, a teensy bit of frustration with wildlife groups who I feel could prob could perhaps be impactful around defending hunting rights, angling rights, trapping rights, that they might be impactful because it would be an unexpected voice for wildlife, like hunter-based environmental groups, hunter-based wildlife groups, to say, like, this matters to our constituency. This matters to our supporters. You need to understand that this is, this is upsetting to us. Yep. Because I feel like it would help us defeat some of these things, that some of these losses we're having. Yeah, and I think that, you know, you'll see a lot of our community will engage in those, you know, the different groups that do engage in those state fights. Uh, from you know maybe Boone and Crockett on a you know sort of intellectual level sure. to the Association of State Fish and Wildlife Agencies to any individual group that happens to be strong in a particular area, but it just hasn't been our issue in the past. I mean, if we can be supportive to our you know partners who are engaged in these things, we will. And it may at some point maybe we will have to recalculate and engage in some of these. But we have enough stuff going on in Congress right now. And on the federal side, that we're not looking for any you know new fights. No, again, yeah. I, man, I, I totally understand you can't be everything to everybody. If you just were like a drunk guy in a bar, mm-hmm. throwing wild punches, <laughs> right? You get about you'd get about as far. Yeah. So I understand it, but I think it's it just you know helpful to have. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that there are, you know there's some allocation issues we will engage in. I mean, an issue like you know golf red snapper, you know, which you know was you know you could argue was sort of a you know feds versus the state and a very parochial issue down there, but it had much broader implications about how we manage recreational fisheries in federal waters. So we would en- we engaged on that issue. You, meaning, uh, just to, like to, to express differently, that you engage in, in a state issue if you feel that it's something that has potential implications that would occur there's, around the nation in a similar there's federal some sort state of, dispute. some sort of direct federal nexus. And in that one, yeah. it was about federal fisheries management. And essentially, the solution is let the states take over. And which we did, basically, they took over red snapper management. And red, there are a lot more red snapper out there than you know people used to think there were. And that fishery is very well managed right now. And so that worked. But that was a case where you know, we were arguing about state versus federal jurisdiction on that one. Gotcha. But, you know, generally, we don't engage. So I mean, it, che- it checked your federal box. Yeah, but I'll give you another example of a place where we have engaged with state issues, like when the Trump administration basically rolled back the Clean Water Act and you know took out half the wetlands in the country and you know a large percentage of headwater streams from jurisdiction. It was very clear that Congress wasn't going to deal with the issue. We weren't going to get any place the administration. So we helped, like in Pennsylvania, an effort to increase their you know, water quality standards, recognizing that that was where the game was going to be played. And if we could help a couple of states, you know, essentially develop prototypes about how they can protect their own waters, we could bypass, you know, the federal legislation until, or federal problem until at some point Congress wanted to deal with this issue. Yeah. So again, that was an area where I felt that there was, we can get into it because, 
you know, this is relevant given the lack of, you know, federal engagement on an important issue that is, you know, not just Pennsylvania. If they have shitty water quality in Pennsylvania, that means the Chesapeake Bay suffers. So, you know, if we can create some prototypes in states like Pennsylvania about how they can protect their own streams better, then that's, you know, worth putting out there. What do you think is going to happen? This is my last one for you right now. What do you think is going to happen with, and you got to kind of explain it a little bit too, now that the administrations have switched, what do you think is going to happen around the Tongass uh, roadless stuff? Uh, I think that will get, again, go back to, you know, the previous roadless rule. You know, so those areas will get protected again. And again, we would like to see, you know, some sort of, you know, not have this flip back and forth every four years, depending yeah. on who's in power. So I think we would be you know, perfectly happy to sort of do what we did with Idaho or Colorado, state-specific roadless rules, and maybe a blanket roadless protection in Tongass may not be perfect. Maybe there are areas where you want to have you know, some changes to that. Let's have that discussion. Um, but opening the entire area to you know, development was not a good solution. I do have, I, I lied, there's one more. All right. Pebble Mine. Yeah. It's kind of in its death throes, writhing on the ground right now. Correct. Is someone going to, you know, well, I walk mean, up we, and put a, put one behind its ear? That, that's certainly what we want to have happen. They, you know, obviously, the Pebble Partnership is appealing, you know, its denial of a permit. So this is still actually alive from an administrative standpoint. Now, I do not expect the... You know, Biden administration Corps of Engineers to reverse the Trump administration and say, you go for it, you got a permit, you can develop this mine. But long term, you know, we've got to figure out a way to permanently protect that area. And we've been in quiet discussions with Senator Murkowski and Sullivan uh, about, you know, what would it take to, you know, it could be a land swap that creates an upper Bristol Bay National Wildlife Refuge, which in Theory, it would still allow, you can do mining on refuges, but you can't do it if it's going to impact salmon. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is that one of the solutions? Is there a state solution, you know, states protecting those lands? You know, I think that, you know, Alaska is probably going to want, you know, a chunk of flesh to sort of take development off the table because that's the way Alaska works. So they're going to want to, you know, either pile of money or they're going to want to, you know, a land transfer someplace where they can actually make money, you know, long term. Yeah, you can't, I, I mean, you can't blame them. No, I agree. And I, mean, I, don't, I know you're saying that's how Alaska works, but that's how a lot of places work. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Alaska's just got it down to sort of an <laughs> <in> art. Yeah, <laughs> they, they, yeah, they have a, a, a lot of opportunities right. to, to, well, to, listen, to, I, to work know, on it. And there's just so much federal land up there. I mean, you, know, you have to be able to develop some of it if you're going to you know, make a living in Alaska. Yeah. And there are certain areas that are far better for development than you know, the Pebble Mine area. That's for sure. Yeah. Okay. Anything you want to add? Uh, I'd just say there's a couple other things to keep your eyes on as we move forward. Please. There's this uh, 30 by 30 initiative that was talked about during the campaigns that was in That's a not Biden the, the, executive order. Not, nothing to do with the ESPN? No. Nothing to do with that. No. <laughs> okay. Which I always love those. But this is, a, this is actually, you know, this came out internationally and it was around the biodiversity crisis, the idea of protecting 30% of the world's lands and waters by 2030. And, uh, you know, the, how you do that is, you know, the challenge. So, you know, the Biden administration, you know, during the campaign talked about it. When the initial climate executive order came out of the White House, they mentioned, you know, this 30 by 30. Now, it can go one of two ways. It could become, you know, a 
preservationist protect strategy where you're drawing lines on maps and not allowing any activity. And there's obviously the, the wilderness, you know, the hardcore environmental advocates are pushing that direction. What the case we're trying to make is you got to think much more broadly than that. First of all, it ought to include restoration because drawing a line around something that's degraded doesn't help you in any way. Mm -hmm. So there ought to be a restoration focus. We need to engage private landowners. If a land is under a conservation easement, but you know somebody is still you know cutting timber on it or you know, making a you know doing agriculture, in my mind that's conserved. It's never going to have uh, Walmart there. It's never going to have condos if it's got a permanent conservation easement. If you have you know working forests someplace again that are under conservation easement that are certified sustainable by a third party, FSC, SFI, the two outside forest certifying bodies, in my mind, that ought to count as protected. Again, it's never going to get developed. And if your goal is climate or biodiversity, as we talked about, that mosaic of habitats, having some young habitat is a good thing. Um, you know, so we've been arguing that define, you know, define this broadly and use the word conserve and not protect because you, instead of making this scary, say to a Western landowner, who thinks you're going to go in and lock up their land, they become part of the solution. You know, you can incentivize them to, you know, protect an area, to put a conservation easement on it, to plant things that, you know, improve soil health, deal with carbon. And still make a living. And still make a living. Yeah. And I just think that makes a lot more sense. So when the executive order came out of the White House, uh, you know, we won round one. It had the word conserve in there and not protect which was important symbolically. It also laid out a stakeholder process that includes private landowners to talk about how are we going to define this and what's going to go into it. And that process will probably be rolled out by the Interior Department in the next week or so. Okay. I don't know what's going to be in there, but it's definitely going to be worth something to watch because it can blow up and be you know, thrown out, perceived as a land grab and a top-down approach, or it could be aspirational and you know has a lot of folks behind it you know, trying to make it work, including private landowners. The goal is 30%. Do you know what percentage is protected or conserved Well, again, right it now? depends on how you define that. You know, the USGS did some sort of, you know, study a while back, and they said that 12% of the, the nation's lands are currently protected. But they only use the definition of, I think, national parks, wilderness areas, national monuments, you know, the hardest core protection that we have. They didn't, you know, they did not look at conservation easements on private lands. You know, they did not look at, you know, like regular forest service lands that are well managed, but are not, quote, protected in that sense, because there may still be timber harvest on them. I'd imagine you'd, if you were going to do that right, you'd want to find a way to um, begin to consider even like recreational properties like the one we're sitting on right now. Sure. That, it, yeah. that, that, a, recre that, that a recreational property would have... Um, and I know there's conservation easements and stuff, but that would have pathways. Yep. Would it would have pathways to become that? Well, I would argue even you know like a CRP, which may be on a ten or twenty year contract. I mean, we want as much land in that type of thing as we can get. That's not going to get developed. We know for ten or twenty years, and uh, let's count that. You know, so let's you know err on the side of counting more as opposed to less. And if we have more than thirty percent protected, great. Let's, well, that's what I, I feel like. Let's they got raise the, the goalposts. They got the cart uh, uh, in front of the horse. Right. I feel like you'd have to get your hands around, uh, I, there should be like gold star, okay? Gold star being wilderness areas. Mm -hmm. Like how many gold star lands do we have? Yep. 
right, down to Bronze Star, and, and maybe that catches CRP lands. Yep. Add that up, and then say, like, are we satisfied with that, or should it be more? Right. I would argue that we'd probably want to increase it. Sure. But to just throw out some wild-ass number when no one even knows like, well, I mean, what's it, there. It, it came out from the international perspective. You're thinking oh, about dude, Sub-Saharan uh, Africa, or South America and the Amazon, or Southeast Asia, a lot of these really rich biodiversity areas. And that you know are not protected at all. I get it. I get why they're laying out these you know sort of what it seems like very ambitious goals yeah. for us. Yeah, you know, we've got a ton of protected land. Yeah, you know, we have 640 million acres of public lands in this country that are never going to get developed. Now, you may argue that you know having a you know solar array or an oil and gas development or timber harvest is development. Okay, we can have that argument. Well, those are three real different things. Yeah, no, it is okay. exactly because I would go. No, no, yes. All right. <laughs> yeah. So I think that, you know, again, it depends on how you define this stuff. And that's a great conversation to have. Let's have that conversation. And I think that we win on the merits when you're talking about biodiversity and carbon. I'm, I'm thinking 60 by 30. Doesn't have the ring. Doesn't have, I think they did it because the ring, right? Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. 50 by 50. Yeah. But I, I think you have to <laughs> consider private lands and and you know recreational properties when you look at the amount of private ground that that is you know on the tax record like dedicated to recreation specifically wildlife um that that outshines that makes that 640 million acres look like 640 piddly million acres yep. we got yeah, a lot more in private because th that approach is also saying that this this 30 and I know you're not like sitting here like ready to take bullets for the 30 by 30, right. but that this 30 will all happen to be west of the Mississippi River. Oh, yeah. No. Yeah, it's got to be, you know, that's, it's got to engage, you know, private land, I think. And I think there's beginning to be broad agreement on that, even within the Biden White House. So, which is good. And then, uh, you know, then we can think about things like your know, farm bill and how that can be used. You know, properties like this where it may not even be under conservation easement and probably would need to be to be counted. But, you know, given the work that's been done, the biodiversity we have here, you know, the myriads of habitats, you know, this is exactly what you want. And we ought to be, you know, figure out ways that we can encourage folks like the guy who owns this land to enroll, you know, be a part of that mm -hmm. counting. Yeah. Because there's, I mean, you know, we talk about them all the time, but uh, like Doug Duran's place, man. Yep. I mean... You know, he's, they got their family's got a few hundred acres of land, but I mean, they they obsess over every square inch of it. Yep. You know what it's going to look like in the future. What we need to do now. Like, how can we keep it the way it is? Yep. How do we not break it up? You know. Well, and also I just think even that, even the habitat side. I mean, let's make sure we have some snags for sure. Yeah, you know, woodpeckers and so owls. Saying, yeah, and, yeah. It, it's all happening yep. there. And then you imagine that. Um, and I don't I don't have any proposals, but if we really wanted to get serious about this thing, um that there would be more of a sort of, uh, I guess some really smart person would come up with some expression, uh, like like a, a more sort of elastic uh, expression of like the nation's goodwill toward that consideration and activity. Yep. That it's not, that it, that if a family is thinking about it in a certain way, it's not just like, one person's death like it's not one person's death away from development correct you know and i know we have mechanisms in place but i know they're like they're sometimes onerous and, and hard for people to deal with and i don't know i don't have the answers but i imagine that 
we have any, there's just a, I'm, I'm just thinking about now because you're thinking about this, this, this percentage thing. We have an enormous amount of land in this country that's, that people are thinking about. Yep. Right. They're not just like waiting for it to hit a certain dollar figure so they can cash out. Right. And, and turn it into houses. Like they're like, man, I'd love for it to stay like this. Well, we haven't even talked about the ocean side too. And that's really where it got the, you know, the, the hunting and fishing community kind of spooked on this whole thing to start with, because there was a process back in California, you know, a couple of decades ago that set up marine protected areas off of California that did not allow recreational fishing mm -hmm. and even well-managed recreational fishing, like catch and release or something like that. And, uh, you know, and, that was so when 30 by 30 got was started to be talked about and there was you know a, there was a bill in california to you know first be the first state to adapt you know 30 by 30 and it died in the california legislature because the sponsors you know basically would not put in writing that recreational fishing should be allowed so that ought to be a warning sign to the yeah. preservationist community that you know let's be sensible here we want people to get on the water to enjoy it to you know, be a part of it because you know they're going to be the you know, the future generation that's going to be there to protect this thing. That's right. They're we're the, not. They're the best stewards out there. Right. Yeah, we're you know you and I going out there fishing and catching a couple of fish for dinner. That's not the threat. The threat are bottom trawls that are trashing the habitat. It's ocean dumping. It's ocean mining. You know, it's that sort of stuff that ought to be you know out, out of bounds in a protected area. Not you know us going out there and maybe killing a couple of fish to take home for dinner. Yeah, as well as people, people want to managed. feel good about themselves, but they right. don't want to feel like they're like totally screwing themselves to get there. Yeah, exactly. And plus, yeah. it's just you know if you're just you create division and you create dissension when there shouldn't be any. If you did something like that has no biological basis, like banning recreational fishing, you know, in an area of the ocean. Now, if it's a spawning area and there's a good biological reason to do it, fine, do it. There's a there's a every year we take our kids down to an area in Baja Peninsula and uh. There's a small closed area there, and it's uh, they they really go out of their way to express the value of that closed area. So, the signage around this this marine this marine preserve, the signage has calculations of the number of fish caught by small commercial harvesters, thanks to the closed area. Because mm -hmm. it becomes a fish producing area. Yeah, and it's like very, it's mm -hmm. like, it's articulated in many ways, yep. in many places, that that's what this is. Yeah. You know, it, it's, and you can see that there's a little bit of a psychological game there. Um, don't be pissed. Like, what you're harvesting comes from here. Right. And that's, I think, a very reasonable way to look at it. Because mm -hmm. obviously, that they've done some science there. They know the key spawning areas, you know, and they've made a public education outreach, you know, program around it. But before you just go off and zone off huge areas of the ocean, just so you can meet some mystical 30% goal. Yeah, I'm with you. you know, let's be thoughtful about this stuff. You guys got any more questions? Nope. Good job, Whip. Cal, Cal seriously thought about whether he had a question or not. He didn't just say no. Well, I did. Yeah, lots of questions. <laughs> it's like, what, what direction? Can we start a new direction? All sorts, you know, no, you did a great job. That was great. All right, guys. Always good talking to you. Yep. Thanks for joining us. Whit. Again, Whit Fosberg, the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership can be found at trcp.org. Right on. Send him a big old check. Thank you. We'll write, we'll write you a thank you note. 
Many. <laughs> <laughs> and he'll write you a reminder next year. <laughs> he might come visit you if the check's big enough. <laughs> All right, thanks, Whit. Um, remember when we used to do closing thoughts? I don't even remember what we used to call them. Is that what we called them? Closers. Closers. I just eventually I got one. to the, I still believe in them. I just eventually got to the point where people would just, I don't know, I just thought the people would know to say them. Yeah, that, and if you've been going for two hours, then, you know, closing thoughts, just add another half an hour. But I have one today. Oh, I have please. two, actually. Please. One, I found, I saw a tree. It was an old dead snag, speaking mm-hmm. of snags. Mm-hmm. I was near the power line, and I see an old dead snag, and about, I don't know, head high, there's a plastic collar on this dead snag. This doesn't ring a bell. I mentioned it to Guy. Guy says, yeah, your buddy Steve had me oh, put that on that Oh, I a dog tree. collar. No. Oh, yeah. I, I'm doing this with my arms. I know, but I don't know, man. I thought you meant the tree was like that <laughs> and the snag was smaller and there was a plastic collar. Yeah. Oh, because we've been talking about that too. <laughs> oh, yeah. We did tell a nasty story about a dog collar. Yeah. That's why I thought you meant a plastic. It- I got you. Yeah. I got you. Um, tell me about this plastic collar I was walking along tree. with Guy. Uh, and saw a wood duck come out of that tree. And I said, you ought to wrap that tree in something so the rac- the raccoons, of which there are plenty, mm-hmm. um, so the raccoons can't get up there and kill the wood ducks. And the way I remember the story is he was already planning on doing it. I think he's giving me credit for it because he's a generous person, but I think it was on his radar. And now, is that something that you can just buy, or is that uh, custom? What I meant for him to do and what the, the practice I was familiar with, and it's probably expensive if you had a lot of wood duck trees, is you, I remember people used to wrap them in, uh, you'd buy sheet metal, like aluminum flashing, whatever, yeah, yeah. and wrap it in that. But I mean, if you went out and if you wanted to do a dozen trees, you're probably, you know, big trees. I mean, that's, that's a hit to the pocketbook. So I'm, I'm glad there's some kind of plastic what you do see is those things people sometimes put on or those things that look like you're trying to keep squirrels out of your feeder. A flange mm-hmm. that comes down at an angle. But I, I knew that, in, you know, in the old days you used to put flashing around it so they can't get purchased with their fingernails on it. But there's got to be less, you know, cheaper, less sort of visually, I mean, it, you know, Better it, looks like, it looks like a tree wrapped in aluminum from... Yeah, a million miles away. So I'm glad to hear that he. Glad to hear they did it. Yeah, no, it was great. You know, at first, because at first it looks you think like, ah, oh, that's kind of weird and unsightly, but then when you know it has such a mm-hmm. good purpose, you're stoked about it. Yeah. Uh, my other closing thought is, uh, you've seen this big giant oak that we uh, called a gobbler from yesterday and killed him. And as we went, we took a walk around that oak now a few times during this uh, turkey hunt. And uh, standing next to that oak in awe of it, it is... But you were off looking at it from afar. When we killed the bird, but I've also stood now. I've Yon- sat underneath Yonnie it. Yanni called a bird from it, and he called a bird to it. <laughs> oh, because <laughs> they, they, they show up at both that died. oak weirdly, man. Oh, they, so you've hunted turkeys around? No, it I've too. just seen. I've just been looking at that field and seen them. Yeah. Oh shit! I've described to people like, "There's one by yeah. the," you know. Cal and I might go sit under that <laughs> oak here in the next an hour too. But uh, 
it's like, it's a such a big tree. I mean, what do you think the diameter of the base? At least six feet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. could, if it's, you're on one side of it, you could hide three grown humans on the other side and not see them. No problem. Yeah. It's a big tree. It's huge. Yeah. It's the, the, the first branches are long enough that they could be their own tree. If you just cut them off and we're able just to plant them into the ground, <laughs> yeah. they're like, I mean, they might be 60 feet. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're it's, a, it's a giant and it sits right in the big, in the middle of this, uh, it's a cornfield this yeah, year. Yeah. You, you like whoever, you kind of have a soft spot for whoever was clearing the land. Yes. Well, I got to notice and there was a, there was a chunk of rebar drove down in the ground at the base of that tree. It was probably a corner at some point in time. Mm. Well, I, I thought I thought it was either a corner or it had lightning protection on it. I was going to say somebody tried to ground it. I think someone had such a soft spot for a big old tree that they left it there. That's what I like to think. Well, you'd have to be some sort of evil person to cut that thing down there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's got me to thinking about like the way that like like whatever you want to call it, preservation conservation um the way that it can hit you and i was just really standing there like in awe of the special thing and thinking how like like you're saying you'd have to be evil to cut it down now but like some special person had the forethought back in the day and now you could take anybody from anywhere in the world and put them 20 feet from that tree and they would sit there in awe and i think that we all need to like have that try to have that mindset sometimes you know when you're just going about the world, just have forethought to think what stuff going to be like for future generations, you know, when it comes to nature. Because something like that is just yeah. spectacular. But you also got to be the person that can look at an old dead snag and know the value of that, too. That, too. That, too. There's a lot of wildlife value in that oak. There's a lot of shit using it. Yeah. Bunch of coon crap at the base of it. Oh, Yeah. All kinds Saw of cardinals deer rubs. It. It's it smells like a uh, like a farm. There's so many deer laying <laughs> underneath it. <laughs> when you're sitting there, you yeah. catch that. I, I was like, man, it's like elky almost. But I think it's just so many deer. There's so much like, stuff uses it. Yeah. yeah, that's cool. All right, thank you, Yanni, for the closers. Oh, you're welcome. And thank you, everybody out there, for listening. See you soon. And we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose Interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today.